Uh, welcome everyone to uh, another episode of Notes from the Aleph. And Aleph is a high point from which all things are visible. And from our vantage point, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. And here, our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, and our good friend and GM, Red Rabbit. When it comes to tabletop role-playing games, I have 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rule sets at the table. My pronouns are he, him, and they, them. Rafferty, go. Hello, I'm Rafferty, he, him. I have 30 years of experience being a tabletop game. I used to work for Nights at the Dinner Table, and now I work for Sanguine. And Red. Uh, I'm Red. I'm also he, him pronouns. I'm a perfect professional game master for three years now lover of tabletop game systems lover of narrative and of mechanics trying to find the elusive middle ground between the two recent years there's been increased popularity for uh videos and streams of people playing tabletop rpgs uh with teams like critical role acquisitions incorporated and uh even our own you know uh please subscribe um let's see let's see now it's always been true that uh, what's on a camera isn't always a genuine or natural reaction and most people will kind of shy away or project a desired emotion and of course actors are supposed to sell us on the fantasy of what we're watching for most of these streams there are paid actors playing an idealized game and as professionals they focus on the show first and rule second these shows are really great for getting people interested in the hobby and trying to uh play uh Oh, I'm sorry. I got lost in my notes. Uh, so uh, they're the really good for getting people interested in the hobby and trying to uh, play and run their own game, but they might start and ask, why is my game not like the show? So as players act more in their own self-interest, uh, their GMs simply don't revive their character, or uh, they find themselves an open exploration game while expecting like a grand narrative to guide them along. Uh, today, we're going to talk about these shows and how they affect people at your table and the designs of the games themselves. So, uh, who wants to kick that off? Oh, well, I can Scrappy. be angry. You want me to be angry? Yeah, be angry. Uh, Rant. So, um, yeah. So, no, I've been talking a lot about this. and The vocabulary that uh, I have been using recently is the idea of performative play which is the idea that uh, when we show up uh, at the game, our goal is to assume the role of some sort of actor and then um, portray that role to entertain other people. You know, I'm a cobbler. Look at me. I'm being crazy and chaotic. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody look at me. And, you know, uh, that sort of play. And cracking in-jokes. Like you mentioned, like when people tune into stuff like Harmon Quest or Acquisitions Incorporated, they like to see the, the actors crack wise, make jokes, laugh. And it feels like an experience you want to join in. But what they're doing there is um, it, the things that make for a good performance are not the same things that make for a good game. I think the summary I'd use for this is, do you guys ever watch Let's Plays? Do you do that? Oh, yeah. Really frequently. I mean, that's okay. my so, main hobby. <laughs> not as much anymore as people stream. But every now and then you hear somebody in a Let's Play or in a stream say, okay, for this next part... I have to do a lot of grinding. Since that's not going to be interesting to watch, I'll do that offline. Yep. And, and that, I think, is like immediately the the borderline there between this is no longer a fun performance, but, you know, we assume that the person would play this game to go ahead and do the gamery. There's lots of things you can do in a game that are mm -hmm. fun to do as gaming that aren't necessarily fun 
for other people to watch or uh, uh, in line with what I'm going to call the linearity. Performance. So in other words, the, the, we've got the, the odds of these two things here. And I think that one of the, the problems is that there's very few games. Like they're doing, they're making this work online where these performers show up and they are professional actors. Matt Mercer is a professional actor. Dan Harmon has a bona fides in the industry. These are professionals mm-hmm. who know how to direct people and they have paid professionals in front of them. So they're all coming with an expectations of this is how we perform. But when you go read the, the books, the Dungeons and Dragons and the, the other ones that they sell you, they're not selling, they're not talking about their game as if it is performative. They don't reward you for performative play. Here are monsters, you kill them, here's the loot they get. If you roll badly, you will suffer and you will die. Here are skills, if you fail them, you won't make progress. So they're not designed that way. So I think we start have to start asking ourselves how much performance we want in the games. Right. And I think if like we look at like a lot of board games, like I don't think a single board game is really made to be performative and interesting for like the spectator. Like no one's ever watched a game of Monopoly and gone like, man, this is exciting. I, I guess yeah. like the uh one that comes most to mind would be like a tabletop war game where that's naturally interesting because it is a competitive thing and people are at least interested in a competitive thing. Now I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to stop you right there because I have to contradict you. There has been a long running show called Will Wheaton's Tabletop, Mm -hmm. which, which before they were doing role-playing games, they were sitting down and playing competitive board games and card games on the show. Uh, There's also beer and board games, which is one I watch. But there are, there are, and and there's, well, I don't think uh, Sit Down and Shut Up does that. But um, but anyway, Will Wheaton's Tabletop would be the big one where they were playing, and people were watching them. But I would like to add that you were saying, like, this is something very interesting. Yeah, but those shows are edited. So they're not mm-hmm. showing you, like, eight hours of somebody playing uh, Munchkin or Settlers of Catan. They're, uh, they have professional actors who come to the table to, to be performative about it, and then they edit out all the boring things. Right, but it does exist that there are, like, say, people who are playing Warhammer 40k. They'll record two hours of them literally playing the game, showing off every dice roll as they do it. I'm sure somebody does that. It's a big internet. There's a good number of people. I've, like, lost hours into that at this point. So and that has been somewhat entertaining because competitive aspect. Well, that's what I, but, I think that's an interesting point, too, because there are people who will watch actual plays for the mechanics they want to see people play the game they want to see the skill or maybe they want to learn how to play the game right but um but that is a separate audience right there's times when i will watch actual or listen to like role-playing game plays that aren't done by professional people they're done by people that say like hey this is our first time busting out this system and so we're going to play around with it and we'll be learning on the fly and that's very interesting to me because i don't you know i want to learn about the system as well Right, and 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 what I what I've had to stick up my butt about is that uh, what um, what sometimes is called the Mercer effect, which is watching people play the game and seeing the performance. Some people would watch that and say, "Wow, that looks like fun." I'll do the same thing with my crew. But there's an invisible art going on because what the people who are doing online is performative. In, in fact, this, this this is the linchpin right here. Every role playing game ever published ha- has the statement in it. Um, if it doesn't work for you, just do it differently. GM Fiat, you know, do it differently, make it fun. But the problem is, it's a vague statement. What does that mean? If you're a performative game, you know, like Matt Mercer and his crew and they're online, 
people let stuff go because they're actors and they know that their goal is to be entertaining and to avoid dead air. So they're not going to, uh, you know, make big rules disputes on camera or, um, you know, like, like fuss over grinding or that kind of stuff. Or they didn't come with their own personal character agenda that they need to see there. A good improv actor is trusting the director. They have a motivation for their character and then their role, but they don't, they don't want to steer the plot. They want to, you know, a good actor rolls with the direction. So the players know that they're supposed to do that, that they're supposed to roll with the punches, act performatively, try to have fun, put some elements in it, you know, try to have fun with it. But they trust the director to take them towards a linear conclusion. Right. And I think when most people sit down at a tabletop, like there, there's been plenty of people who like complain about railroading, but people do like expect that maybe they're going to be facing adversity and it won't necessarily work out and that they need to actually try to win. This, and and see, that's where the illusion of like running and playing those games in the first place. Right. And, and that's where I think we're getting real mixed messages because un, uh, unrelated to this, I've been reading a lot of the modern like D&D 5 and Pathfinder 2 adventures. And all of these are written with, like, most of them are written with set-piece battles where you go to a place, there's a fight, you get into the fight, and then when the fight is over, the bad guys escape, or you go through their stuff and read through their notes. But all of these are punctuated in the idea that the fight ends exactly the way it's supposed to. And that's really weird when you think about it, because we just spent a whole bunch of time rolling dice. Like... In right, theory, there's supposed to be random right? elements and something weird happens. One of the players dies, maybe. Or all of us die. We could all roll crappily. Or even worse, when we all could roll awesomely. Again. Yeah, or we go... Uh, th but that's an example of, like, those are two big examples that could easily happen at the gaming table. Um, you know, and this is... But a performative group doesn't have to worry about it because eventually the GM will just say... You know, oh, if the fight's over, the bad guy leaves, and the professional actors will say, well, okay, uh, time for me to roll with the next obstacle for my character. I'm ready for this challenge. Because the acting and the performance is the challenge there. But the text of the book and the rules and the way that's written is it's a war game that you could lose. And there's no rebooting from a saved game in a role-playing game. Right. Well, I mean, until the DM decides to just revive your character out of fire, but, you right. know. Now, now, Red, you're not as jaded as I am, so how, how do you deal with this sort of thing? So, um, I... So I try to see the good in everything, especially when it comes to my players, because you gotta, gotta keep the game going. And um, I have played with people who certainly are a lot more interested in the performative aspect than they are in the game aspect, right? A lot of people who are admittedly huge fans of Roll20, um, uh, well, Roll20 is not the thing, uh, Critical Role, right? Which, again, nothing wrong with that. I dabbled in it a little bit. It didn't really, like, uh, stick with me as much, but um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with liking that stuff either. I think that's fine. Um, but I do see that there is a um, some players, uh, and these players will kind of tune out or get really frustrated sometimes with aspects of the game when you're playing and you know their character they find that their character does not mechanically match what they envision the character in their head to do to be able to do or they were you know or maybe you'll put them in situations that are mechanical puzzles to solve be it combat be it some sort of skill challenge type scenario and they will resent that because you cut out right there at the very end your mic's cut out. Oops. Oh, one moment. Ah, technical difficulties. God hate them. 
but they can kind of like riff on that while Rain Steve comes back. Um, yeah, I mean that. That's hey, there we go. All right, that's okay. You can you can take it if you want. I was on our. I mean that's uh, as I think you had a good point there where we said mechanics. Like one of the um, problems with um, like when people talk about old school games and the older ones, a game like Dungeons and Dragons, like the early ones, had very few rules. You rolled like six stats, so we know you have intelligence, dexterity. And higher numbers mean you're smarter or more charismatic. Something, something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a number. We just look at it. So if I, we have to improvise something, we say, well, which one of you is the most charismatic? You are the one who should do the persuading, etc. And But there weren't any formals for that. Now, a lot of people wanted to complain. They wanted more formality. So as the 80s went on in the 90s, you started to get games that had formal skill numbers. Like, it's not just, you know, I'm charismatic. I have a persuasion uh, bonus you know, persuasion chance of 50% or a plus 15 to beat this DC or something like that. And a long list of skills and formal abilities appear. And then you also had, and this I always have to emphasize, choice started to show up. In older role-playing games, there were like an actor's improv challenge. You rolled some dice, some stats showed up on the sheet, and that's what you were playing today. Rise mm-hmm. to the challenge. You'll see text yeah. in those books that say rise to the challenge of improv of what those numbers are. You didn't choose. A modern gamer expects, no, you can make the character any way you like, tweak these numbers, I'll do all that, and build the character they want, which means that they're building the character they want to play, which is different from a performance because it was performative. The director would be assigning roles to the actors based on how they wanted them to perform. The actors may be able to inform the performance based on what they were cast for and skilled for in the first place, but that's not, but the game is over here saying juggle a bunch of numbers, build the character you want, and then show up with that character. And that and what Red just said here is that that's at odds with performative play. Um, the game is telling you build whatever you want and bring that to the table. But performative play says you will be assigned a role, and that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you know, I think um, there's another aspect of it too that is what I think really does bother me actually <laughs> at the table and i you know i keep it to myself i try to or i try to like gently suggest you know these things to people in ways that don't single them out but um what i find a lot of people who are really in love with the creative aspects of the game uh in a performative sense what i think what intrigues them about it is this idea of it's like a way uh it's like public creativity, you know? Everyone went through that fan fiction phase. Some people never got out of the fan fiction phase, but everyone likes to, like, create. Unbridled, unbridled creativity is just... It's its a joy, right? But a lot of there's a lot of barriers to that in that, you know, you write your thing and then you force your friends to read it. And then maybe if they like it, they get other people to read it. Maybe you find people online who will read it. With this, it's like, no, no, you can just be creative and then you know there's a set time where you get to share that creativity with your friends. Which is, you know, actually something that these games are really good at doing. It's, it's very cool. But I find that, like, what you were saying, Raph, about, um, uh, you know, an improv challenge versus a directed performance. A lot of people you know, direct their own stories. They create these characters that are, um, they're novels in themselves, you know. And then at the table, they're not playing with other people. They're trying to express this character that they have fully rendered in all of its detail. Um, and I think for those people, they 
they will look at the old school style. They will look at the like, oh, I don't have control over, you know, my character. He might fail. My character is this smooth talking, you know, bard that can seduce the scales off a dragon. But, you know, I rolled that critical one. Well, that doesn't really gel with my vision. So I'm not having fun anymore. I'm, uh, I, I, and I think the fun of these games comes from working with the failures and seeing what you know playing to find out what happens it's one of the um yeah one of the tenets of a lot of of the dungeon world i think i right? think that's play a really good out. point there because like the difference between improv and the role-playing game itself is that you could be denied you could get a straight no you can't do that you're not allowed to do that you fail at doing that there is no yes and to a binary role yeah Exactly. So at some point, you then have to go. All right. So what does what do I do now that I failed? And like in play, you'll sometimes just end up at a brick wall. And right. I mean, in real life, when people hit brick walls, they give up and go do something else. But well, if see, you're at the table and that's the problem you're trying to solve, you'll never get over the brick wall. Uh, see, this came up when uh, I was doing a lot of research on old school games because people kept saying old school revival, and every Rafferty goes back say, "What were the actual games like?" And in an older game, before they had formal mechanics or anything, if something was supposed to happen in the game, there are basically three levels of difficulty for it to happen at. It could be impossible. Can't flap your arms and fly to the moon. We won't let you. I don't care how, how you describe it. Um, but there's also um, automatic, which is it just happens because you said it happened. You put on boots of elven kind, you move silently. There's no roll. No one can hear you. No roll required. This just happens. But then there was that middle ground of a random chance. Now, these random chances are arbitrary. I'm sure a lot of you have seen there's a 35% chance that a hooker lies to you, that kind of table. Yeah, you know, I've seen, seen things that. similar to that, but maybe not right. that one particular. But basically, things were in those three categories. And in the older games, when people were role-playing, they, they do what I call the Path of Robilar, which was Rob Kuntz was one of the original D&D uh, designer people. Which is, if you could describe it, you could do it. And a lot of the original role-play was very freeform. And when people are talking about the old school revival, they're talking about capturing back when if I was, you know, uh, Borg the the orc and I did, you know, half orc things to people and was angry and brutish, I might get my way because I impressed the GM because there wasn't any random role to make. You were just, you know, you show up and if you play it like we're going to be cagey and smart or deceptive or, you know, nice to people, they would listen to that, adjudicate that, and it would just happen based totally on your performance. And as time grew on, every aspect of your character got assigned a number. Social interactions got assigned a number. Uh, crafting items got assigned a number. All of these things got assigned a random chance and they attached a skill to it. And uh, that um, interferes a bit uh, with what Red was talking about, where someone says, well, I want my character to be able to do this so I'll be validated and, and rolling badly and failing at it. Um, you know, doesn't validate. But that's where I want to get into the last thing that really bugs me, which is, man, people hate it when I rag on fell forward, which is performative <laughs> play as a tendency to ignore the randomness because you want people yeah. to either feel validated or you want the story to end. But if you start throwing out the randomness in ways that are incredibly obvious and ham-handed, then the people who came here to game uh, you are going to be very frustrated. They're suddenly in a Harlem Globetrotters match, right? Where they're obviously not going to win. Mm. I mean, like when I stab the bad guy and I hit him for a critical hit and do 120 points of damage, 
but he doesn't, you know, which I know no one could survive. But the GM says, oh, no, it's not time for him to die. He gives a dramatic soliloquy and runs out of the room. I'm going to, you know, a gamer is going to be annoyed because it was like, according to the book and according to how I balance my stats, that should have happened this way. But now I've been told that none of these numbers matter. All that matters is my performance if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's where, you know, that's the Mercer effect. That's a lot of people getting bitter because they were told these numbers mattered and they did a lot of hours of work balancing all the stuff and going through 500 pages of stuff. And now they're being told, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Right. That, that's we'll really get to it, another, right? uh, the next one where we're going to talk about like people who spend a lot of time trying to make sure those numbers really matter and are really good <laughs> because you want to yeah. play the game well. And then, of course, when the performance comes up and you're just or you want to be validated performance matters more that's that's a a frustrating moment well like like one thing i see recurring is that some players if the game has the ability to buy more charisma or even better more attractiveness you're attractive plus two to roles where attractiveness matters i've seen some players who always buy that if that is an option their character always has it which means it's important to them that when they're at the table that their avatar in the game is attractive and other people recognize it as attractive. And so that's what Red was getting into, which is, um, I mean, that's going to be, um, you know, what they, what they came here for. A good GM, a good director will pick up that that's what the player wants to do and find ways to put that into the performance of the game. You know, so that would be the rules working hand in hand with that. But that's a good performance. A bad director will just do whatever they want. Uh, speaking of direction, so one thing that's probably very interesting to compare between, say, like the stream things with the actors that people watch versus how it's played is like the uh, narrative experience of it, which even if when you're focusing on the performative aspect, there are differences in when you're watching them. I believe they're more or less following a script, or at least the hmm. person running the game is probably following a script and everyone will go along with it. Uh, but when you're at the table, people don't really follow that script a whole lot, and they will try to, in the spirit of a cooperative storytelling thing, try to take that in their direction. Like, um, one of the simplest examples is, uh, so, guy called Puff Forrest did a video. He ran a module where he's like, wait, how are the players supposed to get into here? Uh, and the module basically kind of drags them along and says, like, oh, they're everyone just supposed to go along and become slaves. Like, no one's gonna do that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I think if I heard you were doing that. performance, everyone would just kind of be like, yeah, you know, this is fine, whatever. I mean, have they met players? Players would rather yeah. die than be taken a captive. It, exactly. A... But if you're doing yeah. a full performance, you're just kind of okay with it. You go along with it because, like you've mentioned before, you have trust in the director that something interesting is going to happen, and it's not just a failure state. But when you're playing, you do have the failure state to think about. And even then, you might come up with a unique idea that's not covered within the text of the game that you're running or within whatever the GM has decided and go off script. That, that is interesting. Those off script moments are some of the most interesting parts of playing the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one thing that actual plays are usually, at least the performative ones, right? Usually pretty bad at expressing because everything feels like you know, oh, it feels like a story. Everything has that nice rising and falling arc because it was planned that way. And so I think people fall in love with that idea, the idea of like communal storytelling. And they don't realize what is so cool about these games is that there's truly, you know, truly nothing, anything is possible, right? 
um, the best things to happen in your game are going to be those moments that no one planned for, not the players or the GM. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of there was a, a game, a 5e game that I was playing in not that long ago. We had a uh, we had a player who uh, had taken heat metal, which is a spell that basically you can heat up metal uh, weapons or armor that the enemies are using, and they Classic would drop fun it. Time. Classic, right? He spent every single session. We were, you know delving through caves fighting goblins wielding bones and stuff and every time he would ask the gm like is this uh uh are they wearing metal are their weapons metal no no and after probably like several months of this we came into a situation where our barbarian came across the best cursed item in the game which is the barbarian the blood thirsting axe or something where basically it sends you into a rage you attack anyone nearby you this barbarian almost single-handedly uh was going to take out all of us and people were just rolling terribly. And it was in this like random moment that my friend was just like, wait a minute, this is my time now. This is heat metal. And he used heat metal to make the barbarian drop the axe. And it was hysterical. It was it was the best, one of my the favorite moments I've had in playing yeah, you 5D. Had, like, several sessions of build-up just him trying to make it work. And you, yeah, you can I mean, see this a lot with like uh, paladins and like detect evil. People need game information and they have the tool to get that in game information. But that is not an exciting experience to watch. So they can be emergent about it. But, I, but I'm going to back up here and be the bad guy because uh, as much as I think we all love the idea of emergence, the idea that stuff comes out of gameplay that we weren't mm-hmm. expecting either due to randomness or player action, Mm-hmm. I can't agree that everyone comes to the table expecting an emergent game where they have the ability to modify and also thinks that the greatest things that happen out of it uh, are changed. There are a lot of people out of it who who uh, come to have their avatar validated and they want the status quo maintained and they really just want other people to talk about how cool their character is. And I'm going to throw the whammy down on the table because the game that was the most successful at this is Vampire the Masquerade. Right. That that is a tabletop role-playing game that is obsessed with your avatar, coming up with all these decisions about your avatar. Who are you? What city do you come from? What do other people think of you? What was your origin? What what do these other folks do? What are your hopes and dreams? Huge sections of the character creation chapter that are all just about what you are, but have no actual game effect. And then when you play the game, it's very much about a masquerade, where even the presentation is, don't change anything. This is a masquerade. No, 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 no. (laughs) <laughs> maintain status quo at all costs we do not change things all of the adventures are about keeping the status quo the same and, right but it's more about like the player's individual status quo may be changing even if well, the world doesn't and even then you might have to Which fight is, for that, of course, that player costs, character focus that costs experience points to them. But, but moving i mean i'm not saying people don't do that but i'm saying that that game is an example of it, it vampire was far more successful as a larp than say you know mm. the fantasy one because there's so little that you do to affect the world or, or look weird. You don't have to dress up like an elf. You don't have to throw fireballs with little bean bags. You could just yeah. be an avatar, an expression of someone in a costume, and have other people talk to you and watch your performance with very little changing otherwise. Vampire was the big game changer when they came out in 91 because there wasn't a game that just embraced that sort of, um, ah, was a pun there, uh, that mm. idea of performative play so thoroughly in fact if you show up at vampire and try to be angry rafferty and throw celerity five and potence five to people's faces they'll tell me i'm a bad player and kick me out because this is about performance hmm right hmm. so uh, um, it's probably I mean, like an interesting say, thing to look into in the future I think. people 
Well, well, people say like different groups of different styles of play. Yes, but what are the rules doing with it? You can play any game you want, any way you want. But if you try to do th- certain things in D&D, try to do certain things in Vampire, you're, the rules are going to help some things or other. Right, yeah. and when you look at the rules of D and D, like there, there's some interaction things, but like we've mentioned before, it's based on the war game. When you like go over to vampire, like one of the most important things is just like getting status, like status as a merit, as a physical thing, is like a rule that backs up you being a cool, important person and being able to like pull at strings. It's a, this is a direct representation of what they want to have happen. You know, I haven't messed too much with uh, the God, the post-God Machine update, but you had to spend your experience points on status in previous versions of the game. That meant you weren't leveling up. You you still do that. You still do that. And I think it's an interesting choice having to choose between becoming a more physically powerful or individually uh, capable character versus trying to get people to recognize you and having social power and systems and a power base yeah. behind you. And, and see, that gets into a very weird paradox because if your game mm-hmm. makes you choose between um, powering up your character and buying status, that means the more status you have, the more incompetent you are. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I definitely It's a agree. weird message send to, to, to players. I mean, that's why when we were designing our games, we didn't do status that way. But, um, yeah, I'll yeah I mean, I, it is not a problem I've managed to solve yet. Well, is it a problem, though? Like, uh, I think a, a little bit. Like, I could talk about, like, the vampire game I'm running uh, Saturdays right now, which is a very casual affair, but... Uh, so, there's mostly new players and, like, one very experienced player, and the experienced player is just, like, making an absolute juggernaut. They're doing great. But hmm. the other ones... Uh, aren't really building those power bases or getting their social status or grabbing contacts or allies or anything. And mm-hmm. I think mostly because they don't understand how or that that's something that they can do that is more protective of their very socially minded characters. Because we have like uh, a 1920s speakeasy girl, a gangster businessman, and a private detective, none of which are really physical combatants or would ever really be the people who are going to be on the front line. That's what the fourth experience player character is really good at yeah. and kind of covers. So think- they don't just because even they're in a group, they don't need to worry about that because they could just call in their bruiser if they really want to. They should be focusing more on the social things that they can construct around them in creating their environment because that's what their characters should be best at. That's interesting. So are you saying that you're that these players are they're are are they struggling to be physical combatants or like uh, vampires, they technically have an edge up over most people, but if like yeah. three gangsters with a gun decide to like ambush them at like 20 meters, they probably have a decent chance of going down if they decide to engage. Yeah. So I would say I would say in the defense of vampire, and maybe this is just kind of parroting what Rafferty said in bringing the game up it to begin with, is the the game definitely tries to attach mechanics to a lot of concepts that don't that aren't traditional like role playing game mechanics you have you know uh stats that represent your um you know how well you know the people that live in your part of town you know you've got stats that represent your looks but then you have stats that represent um 
a mentor figure in your life who maybe they'll help you out sometime. Like that's very interesting to me because it does give it, it does lend mechanics to aspects of the player as created, uh, the player character as created that um a lot of these other games they just assume, you know, yeah, you can you can build this story around your character if you want, take it or leave it, you know, fill in that tiny little background section on your 5e character sheet if you'd like. No one cares ultimately. And in oh, yeah, five I- uh, yeah, I mean, related to that, I think we are finally seeing games struggling because um, a lot of games have had like reputation tracking uh, or, or or long-term tracking. But in the past, they've just been like like either slapdash affairs. Like Dungeons and Dragons said, training is I don't know one d four times one thousand times your level. That's how much it costs. Um, or you would get to stuff like I don't know anyone played Star Wars, but they had this huge reputation matrix that was like really difficult to track, took a lot of work, and then didn't actually do anything. But mm-hmm. we're seeing more modern games like uh, Blades in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse that um, just have you write down, look, here are the people you know, and here are the positives and negatives. Done. Yeah. Um, and then some games like Powered by the Apocalypse will strategically build in what their relations are. And that gets into more performative play because now we're treating the uh, myself as an actor and everyone else, the NPCs, as actors that I might have to get involved with. Like it matters if these people or these people like me. And and most importantly, this is a good design thing because it's not doing the vampire thing. A vampire, I can, in many games you have a choice between do I improve my internal power of things that I have control of? I control strength. I control magic. I control potence. I choose to use those. Or do I want to build up my external factors such as, you know, my territory, my, my hangers on, the ghouls who hang out with, my rank in you know in, in the clan. Mm-hmm. Those are external factors that I might be able to use, but they require me to go meet people, possibly pass roles. Uh-oh, there's that rolling again. So yeah. you'll meet a, a lot of gamery people. And this gets back to what we said earlier about people want to perform. They want to be validated. I want to be awesome. So yeah. Yeah. you would get this... Uh, so you get into this weird feedback loop of even though there are those external mechanics that people can invest in, if you make the player choose between external and internal, most of them will choose internal, especially because they've, either their veterans have been burned too many times by buying stuff that never worked. I mean, the GM decided that the gangrels wanted to hate me, so all my reputation didn't matter anyway. Well, screw that, mm-hmm. I'm buying potence. I know I can tear heads off with that. Um you know, or, or, or um, you know, they, they just want to buy kick-ass stuff in the first place. Who doesn't want to cast a disintegrate spell? So, um, yeah. uh, and that's at odds, um, and that snowballs into contradicting, once again, performative play. If the GM wants certain encounters to resolve certain ways, but the players are spending all of their points on being, on, on ways to overturn that, on ways to win every fight, track down every enemy, seduce every bugbear. Uh, if they've got their stat, you know, their stats just keep going up and up and up over time. Mm-hmm. They're at odds with that performance that you want to see. So the good games that are fi- that finally addressing this either separate those two things where, um, you know, external factors are over here and internal is over here, um, or uh, they, they're really old school and don't even offer those. The way your character growth happens is random chance and events in the game, and players don't have conscious choice, so players can't consciously subvert it. Hmm. Hmm. Like, I'm not saying it's bad to take power away from the players. Um, but it, it creates uh, a player I'll, say, no, I'll rephrase that. 
it is bad to take power away from the players. It's better to never have offered this in the first place. If you don't mm-hmm. want them to use it, mm-hmm. don't offer it. Yeah. Well, so I I just started running a, a Dungeon World game, like a side project thing. It's probably going to be like a, a two session thing um, for players that, um, well, actually family members. So people who they like this stuff, but they're not hardcore role players. Um, and I've been trying, I've been pushing Dungeon World at them for a while, mostly because I've never gotten to play it, but also because it struck me as something they would like. They love the role play. They love the improv aspects. They love that performative aspect of the game. And the thing that I like about Dungeon World is that um, it abstracts a lot of the mechanics. I mean, this is going back to one of our earlier conversations. We were talking about exceptionalist games versus simulation games. This seems like it is the poster child for an exceptionalist game where it's not so concerned with the stats of the world. Everything is being funneled through that, you know, point where the character rolls dice to see what happens. Well, um, in, in, in fact, uh, I'm going to be mean and stop you right there and mm-hmm. uh, if I can. Because, yes, Dungeon World can be very liberating because, like, this is a very simple game. But also notice that Dungeon World doesn't have any provisions for tracking the beast back to their lair or seducing... Uh, you know, the bugbear or anything like that. That's, that's not even a formal option stated in the rules. If you wanted to do that's that, true. you would have to just make the... It's not there. Like, there's yeah, no rule yeah, for yeah. NPC interaction or tracking or anything. It's all only about the immediacy of what's in your face and doing that. And that, like you said, it's very liberating when you play it. Because kind of like, well, we have no expectations, so we just kind of do what we want. But it's also, like, highly, uh, like, linear. If you don't want the players to seduce a bugbear, there's no rule for it, so you can just tell them they can't do it. That's true. I guess that in that way it is uh, limiting, certainly. Um, but I guess I, I like this weird approach to the game that's a little bit more... Uh, right now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think of a game that I think plays to the audience that loves critical role and wants to go on an epic adventure with their friends and tell stories and be validated by the minimized random chance that is in the game you know like the the reason that those players don't throw out the rule book altogether and just play make-believe is because there is something very validating about the numbers and the dice um it's just disappointing when they don't go your way and then that's not so fun but well yeah never rule out that those people are getting paid (laughs) <laughs> well i'm speaking from experience because i think um i've played with those people you know they're not getting paid to play the game they want to be you know they don't want to that's maybe infantilizing they don't want to be the people on critical role but they want to have those kinds of adventures when they i think when people watch like really good these really good performative actual plays they're impressed by the ideas you know the the creativity that the players and that the game runner brings to the table and they're like i've got those ideas yeah you you see a bunch of people smiling laughing and having fun because they they probably are having a genuinely good time with their performance and you want to have that fun too but also they're geeks you know it's like hey i look they had this guy came up with you know this interesting backstory where he's uh Oh, where where he's, you know, an orc that was raised by elves or something. I don't know, bad example. But, like, I had an idea for my personal character where, you know, their all of their magic spells are actually, like, potions they're brewing or, like, desserts. Like, I have a... It's a wizard, uh, a patisserie wizard, right? Like, I think that would be a really cool idea. Yes, the Keikomancer, the, um... (laughs) 
petty yeah. for return. Well, I don't know. Well, but like that's well, the thing. Like being having an opportunity to express that kind of creativity well, is very seductive. And see, it's interesting that you say that because like from one reading, Dungeon World sounds like it's very creative, but from like let's be like cynical Rafferty here. Dungeon World to me is often a very proscriptive game because it assumes that all you will be is some sort of deadbeat adventurer uh, whose only interaction with people is um, uh, telling your servants to do things for you because there's there's no provisions for anything in the rules other than adventure. And right. even and, and like most games, you you don't have rules for being the local farmer. In most right games, now, the optimist sure. whose glass is half full will say, "Well, it doesn't say you can't do any of this, <laughs> you know. Like, what, what, you know? There's something here that says you can't role play, and uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with that." So five, everybody. Yeah, the the issue I'm having right now is why aren't our games doing more to tell people how to have fun with good role play? It's we shouldn't be we shouldn't mm. be having performative fun in spite of the rules. We should be having performative fun because of. The Hmm. Okay. Uh, and I think on that note, probably is a good time to go ahead and cover something Red mentioned, which was the rising and falling action. And these are kind of like good elements for like a normal story. Mm-hmm. And when you, of course, you see people performing these games uh, on streams and stuff, they've already constructed these things, have an idea of how they're going to go, and they will roll along with it. The way most tabletop RPGs, I think, are set up is that they don't really have falling action mm. at all. There, There's no real moment where things are settled and nothing is happening. It, it's very much like go, 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 go all the time. Um, a good point of reflection would be probably one of the earliest 5th edition modules I ran, which was uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, where the very first thing that happens is, hey, look, town under attack. No time to start off, no uh, no time to get acquainted, no status quo. You just kind of go. And when you're doing your own kind of game, uh, you will have a point where, you know, maybe things end. And that's kind of the point where it gets boring because people don't have an idea of what to do or within the rules. Uh, there's nothing supporting them doing anything during, like, downtime. Well, see, and we've also, used the term before, but in this case, just means that you're done with the adventure right now. Well, and this is why I was asking about like what we mean by performative. Because, for example, in in the Tyrant Queen one, you stumble across a village on fire, and there are some bad dragon people stabbing peasants. Mm-hmm. The entire adventure assumes you will immediately throw in with the poor peasants yep. who are under attack, and then immediately run off and join the resistance, who immediately trust you and send you on these missions. To save them from the horde, and that's like I mean, can understand if you bought a computer game and that's what you're being presented with. But then I'm going to flip this around and say, you know, this is Dungeons and Dragons, right? They let us choose neutral and evil at the beginning of the game, right? What if we had chosen evil? What if we want to throw in? What you know? uh, There's a people are racist against Dragonborn, and in my group, two of us are Dragonborns. Maybe we want to throw in you know, with, with the Tyrant Queen. But, or, but, hey, you know, that group happens to have a dragon. I bet they're going to win. Let's be on their good side right now. <laughs> nothing in the adventure was was written in any way to assume you would do anything at all differently than mm-hmm. what they were presenting. They assumed that as soon as you saw peasants, you would help them. As soon as you met the Resistance and they sent you on missions, whether you were qualified for them or not, you would go do them. And um, 
you know, once again, I'm not necessarily saying that's bad, but I'm saying that's that's that is not when people say you can do whatever you want. That yeah. is a prescripted performance that you are doing, and and the game assumes that not only will you help the people and and their village won't be burned to the ground, but somehow you'll always have the trust of the rebels. You'll never fail in any of the missions you go on. They don't. They assume you'll succeed in all of them. Like, what if you failed? Man, there's an interesting, like, uh, sort of campaign idea right there. What if you're assisting the rebels and you have to maintain a reputation with them? And if you fail too much, they will actually say, wait, no, they're not one of us. And stop or, supporting you. That would be fun. Or the entire thing collapses. I mean, like, like, like I'm, I'm, and once again, this is like, you know, you say glass half empty, glass half full. I don't, it, it's not that that can't happen, but if you read the text that's in there, the, it never occurred to the authors of this that this might go any other way. So, sure. funny thing is, the second part of that campaign, the second adventure, is that you disguise yourselves as those cultists, and you go infiltrate them, and they have no idea who you are, but they're just fine with you being there, because they just assume you, you're supposed to. Right, so you can totally for- join up with them, but that's what the game there, that module, considers as to be the following action, where nobody's fighting, and you go hang out with the cultists. For right, and, and that's an example, and once again, of... But that's constant oh. action. It's it's also an example of performative play because what if your group has no disguise ability? Charisma is often a dump stat. Uh, some of us might be incredibly obvious. I mean, I know when I'm playing when I'm playing the Dragonborn Paladin, screaming "Die more blood for the Raven Queen" and cleaving people in half. This is what people are going to write in and say: "The Raven Queen's not in Forgotten Realms." Anyway, when I'm sitting there doing all that incredible butchery and we're like destroying them, being incredibly obvious about it. You'd think that when I show up later, hi, how you do, fellow pirates? Nope. Text of the adventure is that they don't care and they don't know. Right, and and that's why I'm giving that as like if you. One thing I think player like like this gets into a subtext of of player resentment because it was like if you were trying to build say a rogue, you bought charisma and disguise self and a disguise kit and and built your character to be sneaky and all that kind of stuff. You would then discover this didn't matter. According to the script, according to the performance, if the script requires us to be sneaky, we'll just we'll just get there. If we have to sneak into Mordor, we just will. Likewise, if the script says we can't sneak past them, or if it doesn't have any provisions for that, and the GM, who's all like, oh, it's difficult running this game, it's so hard to have time pressure, decides it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And that's what I'm talking about. That that's a you know, that's where the performance is conflicting with the game. If and once we get back to Dungeon World, that's not a problem in Dungeon World because you can't put any points into being in Dungeon World. So you'd never feel that kind of resentment of I bought a lot of abilities and I don't have them, you know, and, and they don't do anything because I wasn't allowed to buy them. So in one way, that's a solution. I want to play Devil's Advocate. I Go think, that, well, I think that I'm ill-suited to do this because I have run pre-made adventures. I have never run something out of a book I think the way that people approach this sometimes, I get the feeling that people will read these things and they will go line by line through it as if they are, you know, a computer compiling code and uh, they will regurgitate what it says on the page with really no consideration for the players, their character abilities, the the backstories that were brought to the table. Even if I think there's language in these books that kind of gives at least lip service to the fact that you should be doing this sort of thing. But, um, 
but yeah, I've never run a game that has just been completely blind to my PCs. I've never run like a convention game where I had a group of strangers with their characters come up to me and sit down and say like, and say like, okay, we're going to run this, you know, down the line. But playing devil's advocate, I will say that I think there is something that attracts people to these games that is on full display with a critical role type actual plays. And also you can see it in these pre-made adventures, which is that I think not everyone, but I think most people, even the ones who may claim that they don't want this, are attracted to the idea of the epic adventure story. You know, like um, Griff mentioned, you know, games that don't have rules for playing dirt farmers or peasants, you know, like, um, yeah. And that's because a lot of people aren't fantasizing about that kind of life. And even if it's interesting from a mechanical point of view, even if mechanically speaking, it might be interesting to manage a base of disgruntled rebels in a war type situation, that is not the fantasy that has attracted people to your adventure module, right? And so when writing your adventure module, I want to say, like, yeah, these guys probably could have added provisions for a lot of these edge cases. And maybe the simplest way would just to be like, hey, what happens if they don't like the... If they think that the rebels are actually terrorists, you know? And here's, like, well, a little I, paragraph about how it could change. And I'm not saying edge cases. What happens if you go to the fight and lose? I mean, is losing an edge yeah. case... I mean, that's a good... You lose the trail of the mystery. That's true. <laughs> they, I'm talking about you go to the fight die. and you get TPK'd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. I think, I guess I agree that maybe paying a little more attention to that, like, what's the fail state in a circumstance? Because uh, you're right, a lot of these things do imply that that's what happens. When I read a pre-written module, I'm usually looking for those things. And when I see a situation that's like, okay... When they when they beat the enemy, they get credit with the rebels or whatever. I think okay, if they don't beat the enemy, then this is something interesting I could do instead. And to your point, I think that what you're trying to say is that people should be writing these adventures with that in mind. But also, I can barely make it through a single session adventure these days. Like, there's a lot of text that goes into these things to begin with. So maybe that's my devil's advocate. Is like maybe the onus isn't totally on the writers of these things. Maybe that's a starting point. And if you're going to run these games. You need to be thinking creatively. You need to be thinking about what your players actually want from this thing, in uh, addition to what it's see, providing. See, see, I'm going to go. Uh, I, I'm going to flip around on that and say, like, the purpose of buying a pre-generated adventure is so you don't have to be as creative. People say, like, mm-hmm. look, I had a hard week at school or at work or whatever. I just want to sit down, just want to game with everyone else. Let's buy an adventure that's already written by professionals that already has all of the encounters balanced, all of the creative ideas were put into it. And most importantly, this is the thing that I'm arguing about, also has, you know, suggestions and helpful hints for if it goes one way or goes the other. And that last thing is the one that's missing in a lot of this. That's why yeah. I'm, I'm talking about these as being performative, because they're saying, like, you will go to this combat encounter, and like you said, there's already a lot of words in this, but are you, so you basically, you just win every fight you get in. You, ne- you never lose. You never retreat. Yeah. And if, if that's the case, that you never lose, you never retreat, I can point out examples in some of the, you know, the critical roles in Dimension 20s, where they lose the fight, and then the GM has to come up with some excuse of why, oh, you didn't actually lose. This was all according to Kikainen. 
uh, okay, well, whatever, uh, that, that, you know, it, it, it moved forward anyway. And, but the GM had to improvise that. And like, you look at the text of these books and it's not in there. These adventures that are being written are assuming that you're going to be performative and you're always going to succeed at everything you do. Mm-hmm. And I, I respect you. You're a great GM. We all well, agree on that. I mean, we're good GMs, but that, that's what I'm arguing about. Like, but why, why is that the excuse that the, uh, the books and the adventures show up and say, do what we say. And if it doesn't work, just be good. If you're, if it goes south and players have a bad experience, cause they all got TPK, you don't have to do blame yourself. Cause you're not good enough. I would definitely love to see a path B adventure where it's like, so your players failed. Here's the entire, here's an entire different adventure module now for their failure. Well, yeah, but and people don't recognize. And, and see, the goofiest crap is some some video games do that, and when video games do that, it's rare because people say they had to make all these extra assets and program all this stuff. That would have taken millions of dollars. Well, do you know how much extra it costs to write another freaking paragraph for a text-only adventure that you downloaded? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it takes maybe about five to ten yeah. minutes, depending now, on how I much understand- you're hanging hauling. We are talking about Dungeons and Dragons here, which is run by that small indie company known as Hasbro. So they might not have enough money to pay people to do that. Yeah, no, they're just so small. I don't think they have the resources for anything. <laughs> right. Those I mean, that's what I want to kind of get away from. It's like I, I don't like the idea of blame. I always want to get away from blaming the GMs. That's what I started this whole performative debate about, which is like mm-hmm. the Mercer effect. Uh, the the big worry about that is when. When GMs say, I wrote this great script and the players didn't do it, what am I doing wrong or what are my players doing wrong? Or even worse, get on forums and say, how can I make my players be more like Critical Role? Mm. And, and, and Because that's what they're asking for. And if that's yeah. what they're at, then we have to ask ourselves, is that what you want? Because to make them more like Critical Role means less emergence and more doing what you're told. Because yeah. they're, they're actors who are showing up and who roll with the punches. Uh, who may be creative and expressive, but they don't give lip. And if you compare them to some of the weirder players you've had an experience, they're not that weird. <laughs> if you want more of that, you have to tell the player. And I'm not saying you can't tell your players that. I'm saying that you, that you should be telling them that. I mean, I mean, you'll get different results. You, we can't have both the gamer cake and the performance cake at the same table. I think that's a good conclusion note. Uh, Red, you got anything you want to wrap up with? No, I think that's pretty solid. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's like, again, we could talk for another hour about yeah, well, we, the things we, that were brought And this will come up again. But yeah, it's we'll come back I, to it. I, I think we all agree when we get, we get back to the pillars of be fair, build up, and have fun. Um, mm-hmm. The idea here is that uh, uh, you have to ask yourself how much performative, you know, or how, how much of this is going to be us being emer- uh, emergent, crazy, and weird mechanics. How much of this is going to be gamery, and how much of this is going to be performance. Once we establish the fair, guideline of that then we can start building up and having fun yep yeah all right then everybody so i think with that that's going to be all for this episode of notes for the a uh we stream bi-weekly fridays at 2 p.m eastern you can join us live on twitch.tv slash ractus we also stream and record weekly tabletop games at the same channel and you can join us at uh start times of 10 2 and 6 p.m eastern standard time sundays and wednesdays norman rafferty here is a partner and writer for sanguine games check out sanguinegames.com and join us on the reddit and twitter uh and look forward to the upcoming book of corals iron claw expansion where you can engage your own pirate adventure and don't forget to check out red rabbit and book him for a game over on startplaying.games as oracular pig be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and come see us all again. So, till next time. Bye bye.